America is back. Diplomacy is back. Well, you know what? Present everywhere, from Lithuania to the Sahel, to Afghanistan, to Iraq, to Lebanon. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Ola Ulliker, speaking to you from my attic in Brussels. And I'm your co-host, Hugh Pope, speaking from my dressing room here in Brussels, too. And with us today, also in Brussels, is Jessica Cox. Uh, Jessica is the Director of Nuclear Policy at NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, for those of you not aware. And she's here to talk to us about, well, NATO nuclear policy, the alliance's view on nuclear weapons, how they fit into its deterrence strategy and overall strategy, and how this might evolve as geostrategy evolves. Uh, so first of all, uh, welcome, Jessica. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here today. I'm also from an interior closet in Brussels. So there you go. <laughs> Brussels closets for the win. <laughs> so, Jessica, what does the director of nuclear policy for NATO do all day? Kind of what occupies you day in and day out? So um, that's a great question because it's my days are very different, really every day. As the director for nuclear policy, uh, I have a pretty broad range of responsibilities, basically for everything that the alliance does that that intersects with nuclear weapons. So. That's everything from big picture strategy and policy making, preparing um, documents and policies for the nuclear uh, planning group, which is the ministerial level decision making body, down through operational considerations. So things like exercises, um, making sure that our forces are trained and equipped through to really tactical things like are and technical issues like are our nuclear command and control infrastructure uh, resilient to the threats that we could face. So really, I have kind of a very broad range of responsibilities and every day kind of is a is a new challenge and a, and a new issue, which makes the job really interesting. Which suggests a little bit of the answer to the next question, which is, um, so does, do nuclear weapons still matter to NATO? It sounds like they do. Can you talk a little bit about why? Why is nuclear policy, why does it matter? I think that's exactly right. I think after the end of the Cold War, NATO, like, like the United States and Russia, both uh, significantly reduced the reliance on nuclear weapons. Over 90% of the nuclear weapons were removed from Europe by the United States. And we really, nuclear policy took a, took a back seat to things like uh, fighting the global war on terrorism, operations in Afghanistan, things like that. But really since uh, the Russian invasion of Crimea in 2014, uh, it really brought a new perspective to the issue. And, and as we have been adapting to the threat that we're seeing from Russia, their missile developments, their increasing nuclear rhetoric, their activities uh, in the nuclear domain. It's made NATO think again about its own nuclear weapons and nuclear deterrent strategies. So we've really seen a shift over the last five years to a renewed interest in nuclear deterrence, a renewed focus on our nuclear policies and capabilities. We've been doing a lot of work to make sure that our nuclear forces are able to uh, continue to be a deterrent to Russia. The importance of nuclear deterrence, the importance of nuclear weapons has been 
increasing and I think will continue to increase into the future. Going back to your daily grind, uh, Jessica, does that mean that you are now sometimes having like emergency days or red lights start flashing or is everything still quite long term and uh, and strategic? Fortunately, no uh, red light flashing days. You know, we uh, we joke in the office, if I get called in on a, on a weekend, then it's a very bad day for everybody. But no, I mean, we I think what we're seeing is um, we're not anticipating getting into a nuclear war with Russia anytime soon. But I think the what we are looking at is how do we bolster our capabilities so that they're survivable in the face of a Russian attack. uh, So they continue to be credible. Credibility is really important for deterrence, because what really deterrence is all about uh, preventing your adversary from attacking you, right? I mean, that's that's the foundation of deterrence. So you want to make sure that you have credible forces, that NATO has credible forces, so that if Russia is thinking about, you know, attacking us from conventionally or or in the nuclear domain, that they think twice and that they choose not to go down that pathway. So a lot of what we do is absolutely strategic thinking, strategic planning. Um, but it's also making sure that our, our DCA forces, that the DCA is dual capable aircraft. Those are the aircraft that the allies would fly to deliver, um, U.S. nuclear weapons. And I can talk a bit more about that, but it's making sure that those capabilities that Russia understands that we have the ability to, to respond and that we would be, you know, if they decided to take a conflict, uh, to the nuclear domain, that they would not gain any benefits and that they would lose. That's really what what my job is to do. So I think you're you're kind of starting to answer this question a little bit, but in a nutshell, kind of for a general audience, how would you describe NATO's nuclear policy? Yeah, so I mean, so we don't have, um, the United States has the nuclear posture review, France, uh, one of the other nuclear allies at NATO, you know, their, their president does a big speech every uh, few years. Um, we don't have something like that, which is a neat, you know, uh, list of our, of our policies. Um, but what we do have is summit declarations, uh, over the past five years, our, our strategic concept, uh, from 2010 that will actually get, uh, rewritten over the coming year. Um, so we'll have an opportunity to actually look again at our at our nuclear policies and making sure that they're uh, relevant for the, the threats that we face today. But really what we think about from a NATO standpoint when we think about nuclear weapons is this idea of deterrence, obviously, but deterrence at you know the lowest level of threat possible. Um, we don't have overwhelming nuclear superiority from a NATO standpoint. Um, but what we have are three allies that are nuclear capable. So we have the United States, which extends its deterrence to NATO allies. We have the UK, which also extends its nuclear deterrence to NATO allies. And then we have France, which acts uh, independently, so they don't participate in NATO's nuclear planning. And then we have the DCA forces, which are the, the dual capable aircraft nations, that have this uh, additional role to play in in NATO's nuclear forces. And the way all of these elements work together is to make sure, again, that we have survivable forces, that we have a mix of capabilities, that we have a mix of decision makers 
so that, say, you know, Russia would not just have to worry about what NATO is doing collectively, but they would also have to think about, well, what is France going to do individually or the United States or the United Kingdom, which really raises the bar, hopefully raises the bar for their own thinking about nuclear use. We also uh, often say that, you know, any nuclear use in a conflict will fundamentally change the nature of the conflict. This means that, you know, if Russia elevates a conflict into the nuclear domain, NATO will respond and we have the capabilities and the ability to do so. And we will would contemplate nuclear response. We also think about things like we don't plan for nuclear use against a particular adversary. So uh, NATO's deterrence and defense in general, we say we take a 360 degree approach. So we want to be able to deter and defend against any potential adversary. So we don't specifically posture our capabilities against Russia, but obviously they're the threat actor that is that we're most concerned about right now. But it does mean that we, we want to have a, a wide range of forces that we can pull from so that we could, in case we face, you know, a range of potential um, threats in the future. But we are talking a lot about Russia here. And Russia would say that its nuclear weapons exist to deter the United States and NATO, right? And you said that the rethinking and the reemphasis happened after the beginning of the Ukraine crisis, which is now kind of, you know, chugging into its uh, seventh year. Uh, but uh, so I'm not sure it's still it's a crisis anymore. But um, after the annexation of Crimea and the beginning of uh, the war in eastern Ukraine, which wasn't nuclear, and it certainly wasn't a nuclear or really any kind of physical threat to a NATO country. So what is the logic of spending so much energy and tremendous amount of resources on a threat that it's not clear is a proximate one at all? No, it's, a, it's a great question. I think Eastern allies in particular are very worried about the Russian threat and Russia's ability to act quickly in a crisis. So as I said before, I'm not worried about large-scale war between NATO and Russia. I think that Russia would have to be really, really stupid to contemplate a large scale major military mobilization and things like that against NATO. But what we do worry about are smaller scale conflicts that could potentially escalate into the, uh, the nuclear domain. So um, the kind of classic scenario is, you know, Russia sees an opportunity to take territory they do so in a NATO ally nation, whether that's the Balts all the way down to, you know, Romania and Bulgaria and the Balkans. Uh, and then they use their nuclear weapons or their nuclear capabilities in order to coerce NATO to divide the alliance and to have those gains be solidified. I mean, it's similar to what they've done with Crimea, but adding a nuclear dimension to it. Well, and adding a NATO dimension to it, right? Because, yeah, right? It, absolutely. I mean, is there evidence that this is something someone should be particularly afraid of? Or is it worst case scenario planning, which an alliance has to do because that's what you do? Yeah, no, I think it's, again, I, I think Russia should think twice about attacking NATO, right? Like, I don't think that, that President Putin is sitting in his you know, in his office contemplating taking over NATO. But we do have to be prepared and we do have to reassure those allies who are most directly confronted with the Russian threat that we have their backs, that we'll be there for them. And then that means that if a scenario escalated, 
that that into the nuclear domain, that we have their backs there too. And I think what we are seeing Russia do in the gray zone in with its cyber attacks, with its more destabilizing activities that that are affecting NATO allies quite significantly. I mean, in addition to, you know, the, the latest round of U.S. cyber attacks, second round of cyber attacks on the Norwegians, um, the, the Estonians and, and others. So, I mean, we know that Russia is doing destabilizing activities within the NATO borders. And so we do have to be prepared in a crisis to potentially, you know, escalate all the way up and have uh, options all the way up the escalation ladder to make sure that Russia, again, does isn't able to gain any utility from their nuclear arsenal. But how prepared is everyone? We don't often think or talk about nuclear weapons very much in the public domain. And you yourself have talked about uh, nuclear weapons may perhaps seeming as retro as a Sony Walkman or a landline telephone. Um, how much is being invested in the upgrading of these weapons? And there's all kinds of things which most people haven't really thought about, like submarine launch systems, hypersonic cruise missiles. I mean, what's going on on the tech front? Yeah, so I mean, so so basically, all the nuclear powers right now and all the DCA allies are undergoing nuclear modernization. So again, after the Cold War, a lot of these systems were being dismantled. We were reducing the number of nuclear weapons through um, treaties, things like that. And a lot of the capabilities really started to age out. And so across the board, we're now seeing all the nuclear nations start to modernize. So the U.S. is undertaking, you know, a 20-year, trillion-dollar modernization across its nuclear triad. Um, That includes modernization of the B-61 weapons that are the ones they deploy into Europe for NATO. Uh, The U.K. is updating, upgrading its submarines, and its um, nuclear missiles, which are the, the Trident twos that they put on their new Dreadnought-class submarines. The French are also undergoing um, modernization. And then um, the DCA allies are also investing in upgrading their own airframes, their own uh, aircraft. A number of them have aging aircraft systems, and um, several of them are, are buying F-35s. Uh, the Germans look like they're going to buy... F-18s. So, you know, so we have, we'll have a, at the end of this modernization cycle, we'll have aircraft that are much more capable. We'll have weapons that are going to be sustainable over a much longer period. So, so we're in a major wave of modernization right, right now. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. You're listening to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group, and we're talking to Jessica Cox, the Director of Nuclear Policy at NATO. So just to pick up on that, Jessica, these weapons, modernization sounds like a, a very positive term. I mean, but they, these are terrifying weapons, aren't they? These are hypersonic things which no one can stop. They're, apparently, there's some kind of submarine bomb that can dig into the coast of America and just wait forever until it decides to explode. I mean, are we getting into new and frightening territory or are you very calm there in in NATO headquarters? Well, so those are capabilities that Russia is developing, not modernizing, developing. And those do those do uh, cause me concern. In March 2018, Vladimir Putin announced five new systems, novel weapons, nuclear weapon systems uh, that it was going to be developing. These include things like the hypersonic uh, missile systems, 
the really big um, ICBM and then what some would say are kind of fanciful systems, but we've still seen them actually testing them. One is a nuclear-powered, nuclear-armed cruise missile. That system, Russia has been testing it. It was the system that was being tested where there was a kind of a nuclear disaster, an explosion a few years ago that killed a bunch of Russian scientists, unfortunately, for the scientists. And then the Poseidon underwater torpedo, which is a, an underwater unmanned torpedo that has an intercontinental range that can hit uh, coastal facilities all over the world. And Russia is also testing that one as well, although we don't think that that the Poseidon or the um, nuclear power, nuclear cruise missile will be fielded with anytime soon. There's a lot of technical issues. But Russia is developing these systems and, and they're developing several different types of hypersonic missiles, uh, intercontinental range hypersonic missiles, theater range um, hypersonic missiles. And, and it really is focused on new nuclear weapons technology, whereas what the United States, the UK and France have really focused on is maintaining and modernizing the systems that are already there. So we're not seeing the same types of, you know, new nuclear weapons capability developments. From a NATO standpoint, I'm very worried about what Russia is doing, not only from a kind of war fighting standpoint, do they have the ability to have a, a first strike that would take out all of our capabilities that we'd have no warning of, that would evade our defenses, all of which are the types of capabilities that, that they're investing in right now. But also just what does that say about the future for arms control, for the NPT, for kind of the future of our of our broader, you know, our broader nuclear landscape? It's very troubling on a, a number of fronts. And, you know, it, and it's something that we look at very closely. NATO, we're watching very closely. I don't think it's causing Western allies to rethink our own investments, but uh, at least at this phase. But certainly, I think as Russia moves down this pathway, if none of these systems are covered by arms control, if they are kind of go on a, a major this pathway where they're really developing their capabilities, expanding their arsenal, diversifying it in many different ways. I do think that it, at some point there will be a tipping point where, where NATO has to relook at our own capabilities and say, do we need to do more? We're not at that point yet, and I'm optimistic that the new Biden administration will invest a lot of energy into arms control. So we'll we'll see um, what they do. I know there's already been some some early signs there, but you know it takes two to have an arms control agreement, at least two to have an arms control agreement, and we don't know how serious Russia is about about coming into a to a new agreement. So. What exactly about these weapons strikes you as uh, approaching a first strike capability against an alliance that has uh, survivable submarines? The second strike, you know, I would say that the U.S., French, British, and overall NATO second strike seems pretty solid to me, no matter what gee whiz bangery comes out of Moscow. No, I, I, have, I have no doubt about our ability to undertake a second strike, for sure. What I do worry about is some of these capabilities that are theater range. So their air launch ballistic missiles, the Kinzhal system, their Sarkon hypersonic missiles, which is going to be on, I think, multiple naval platforms. 
these are dual capable systems. I believe both of them are dual capable, but they will they will have a regional missile advantage. The reason that that matters for NATO is because it will allow them to project power well into NATO territory. It will make it very difficult for us to continue to have our reinforcement strategy for a long-term war fight with forces flowing from North America into Europe. It complicates a lot of the thinking and a lot of the ways that we would think about fighting war with Russia and gives them a real near-term ground advantage in the European theater. And those are the types of things that, you know, when we're looking at our new kind of warfighting concepts for the future, we have to be thinking about. So it's not going to be kind of a, a slow battle of tanks <laughs> uh, across Europe in the future. It's going to be these very precise, maneuverable missile systems that can strike well into the heart of NATO territory that could be, you know, have either nuclear or conventional warheads on them that could take out um, not only our nuclear capabilities, but also um, our other critical infrastructure very quickly and very early on in a conflict. And we don't have enough missile defenses ever. There's never enough that are going to be able to, to prevent those types of strikes. And so it's really just it's changing the nature of the conflict and the potential for war in, in the European theater. And again, like, I don't think that Russia is looking to, to attack NATO, and certainly NATO is not looking to attack Russia. But we have to be prepared for the types of capabilities that our potential adversaries have. And that's where I think we start to get very worried about some of the direction that Russia is going in. So we're talking about a really dangerous, scary conflict. And we've also talked about the advantages of arms control. But NATO's not uh, on record as being a particular fan of the nuclear ban treaty, right, which a whole lot of other countries have signed on to. Do you want to talk about why not? Would the world be safer without nuclear weapons? Or is it safer with them, despite all of these dangers and threats that you've just described? Yeah, so, so NATO is, has been very on the record about the fact that we do not support the nuclear ban treaty that uh, entered into force in January. We had a, a statement by the, the NAC, the North, North Atlantic Council, in January that went through the, the rationale. Um, but basically, the position of NATO is that while we would love a world without nuclear weapons, the ban treaty is is not going to get us there. And the security environment that we're facing right now is not conducive to further reductions in our in our own nuclear capabilities. You know, our our conversation about Russia, I think, really illustrates that, right? So. Um, our position on, on disarmament has always been that it has to be reciprocal. So we have to see numbers on both sides going down in a reciprocal and verifiable manner. And we support many efforts through the MPT, through arms control, through other initiatives that bolster um, stability in weapons limitations. What we don't like about the ban treaty is that we think that it really goes too far in trying to create this global norm that uh, nuclear weapons are illegal 
which we don't subscribe to, while we do think that there are weapons that we would never want to see ever used, we don't feel that they're illegal. They're important for the security of the alliance. Um, they're important to maintain our own nuclear arsenals for as long as our potential adversaries have nuclear weapons. And that's been a very, you know, consistent view of NATO since its founding, <laughs> where, you know, which was, which was based on nuclear assurances from the United States. So nuclear weapons are part of the foundation of, of the security guarantees at NATO. And, and we're not going to support a treaty that, while it may be, you know, have good intentions, doesn't actually create mechanisms that will get us to a, a world in which nuclear weapons can go away. And, and I think that that's, that's really um, what allies are concerned about. And they also see the fact that it is really distracting from what we do need to do, which is bolster the NPT and continue working within the construct of the NPT in order to make sure that it remains effective at reducing uh, the numbers of nuclear weapons and that nations continue to live up to their NPT obligations across the world. And so that's really um, where NATO stands with regards to the ban treaty. And, you know, I, I think that it's unfortunate that, it, that we have to kind of be on the record being against it. But we've been very, very vocal throughout the whole negotiation process. And then um, since it was signed and now entered into force, that we just don't think it's going to accomplish its objectives and it might actually undermine some of them. So that's the NATO position. But um, kind of living in Europe, I would guess that a whole lot of our neighbors here in Belgium would probably be surprised to hear that NATO has nuclear weapons or a nuclear policy, that their nation state is part of an alliance that refuses to sign on to a nuclear ban. Is this an issue for NATO member states when they come to the table to kind of respond to a populace that is on the one hand unaware and on the other hand, if it becomes aware, is horrified by what their own country is doing, not by the threat? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think the ban treaty, you know, the, the narrative nuclear weapons are bad and so they should be illegal is a very compelling message, right? De explaining deterrence and extended deterrence is a much more complicated message and something that it takes a lot more energy to explain, particularly to people who don't have any foundation or understanding of, of the global security issues. And so this is something that um, concerns me. A lot of my job at NATO is doing outreach, doing outreach to explain NATO's positions, uh, doing outreach to academic communities, to parliaments, to the general public. That's why I, I write articles uh, to try to frame up the debate, to try to put NATO's views out there and, and have us be on the record and informing some of that that broader discussion and dialogue. And, you know, we're, we're never going to change the views of, of really hard line, you know, anti nuke crowd. But what I think is really important is that there are other voices out there. And that's what we try to do at NATO is at least say this is why, you know, nuclear weapons continue to provide you in Belgium security. This is why it's important for you, guy on the street in Belgium, to not support the nuclear ban treaty. This is why you should not pressure your government to join the nuclear ban treaty. And putting those arguments out there so that there's greater understanding and greater public debate. And I think really the nuclear, that's our responsibility as a, as a nuclear alliance, 
um, and coming from the United States, a nuclear weapons state, is that educational process. Because people are never going to understand why nuclear weapons are important if we're not out there talking about it. And so I think that that's really one of the things that I try to do is to be out there talking about it. And, and you know, the guy on the street may still choose to disagree with me, but at least he's more informed. And I think that that's, that's the most important thing that I can bring to the table. That's a perfect stopping point, which is both fortunate and unfortunate. It's fortunate because we're out of time. It's unfortunate because we're out of time. And I have this whole list of other things that I want to talk about. But um, that just goes to show what a rich uh, subject this is. So, Jessica, thank you for joining us. This was a really terrific conversation. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. And I'm happy to come back in the future and talk more about these issues. Yeah, if you lets me keep talking about nuclear weapons on the podcast, we will. Um, so listeners, uh, we hope you also enjoyed this. Uh, you can follow Jessica and her work on Twitter. She's at Cox underscore Nuke Paul. And you can also read uh, two of her latest papers that have just come out. One is co-authored with Joseph Dobbs entitled Nuclear Deterrence and Arms Control, a NATO Perspective. And it's in a compendium edited by Amelia Morgan and Anna Petzl titled Europe's Evolving Deterrence Discourse. She also has a paper that just came out in the Washington Quarterly on artificial intelligence and nuclear policy. That one's co-authored with Heather Williams. And uh, we at Crisis Group don't often ascend to the nuclear level, but uh, for more of Crisis Group's work on the rather smaller challenges around the world facing NATO member states and the conflicts and crises they are involved in on land, uh, do check out our website. It's crisisgroup.org. You should follow Crisis Group and us on Twitter. Crisis Group is at Crisis Group, which incidentally is also where Crisis Group is on Facebook and Instagram. Hugh is Hugh underscore Pope on Twitter. And I'm at Olya Olikur on Twitter. And do feel free to tweet at us and uh, tell us what you like or don't like, what we should pay attention to, what we should be talking about on the podcast. And if you're listening through iTunes, uh, uh, we'd love it if you could leave us a rating and a review as well. War and Peace is a podcast partner in a network of podcasts about Europe. Europod, you should check out a few of the others. I'd also like to send big thanks to our producers, Bull Media, and to our own coordinators, Rebecca Zerun Asafar and Patricia Sande, who make sure Ollie and I know what we're doing every time we record one of these episodes. And as always, our biggest thanks are to you, our listeners. We are looking forward to having yet another terrific conversation in two weeks. For now, goodbye. Goodbye. War and Peace a podcast by the International Crisis Group.